Welcome to another episode of A Good Drop, where we send hobbits and whiskey downriver to the bars and pubs. Yes, indeed. We are, of <laughs> course, talking about bourbon and hobbits. We're sending the bourbon to Isengard. Sending the bourbon to Isengard. To Isengard. <laughs> and we will tell you the whole story of how bourbon got to where it is today. So, I'm Stu. I'm Michael. Cheers. Cheers. So this is a good drop, and we are talking about bourbon whiskey. Bourbonist of bourbons. Yes, so for those of you playing at home, bourbon whiskey is a type of American whiskey distilled and uh, char barrel aged and made primarily from corn. Now, in fact, bourbon must be made from at least 51% corn mash, with the remaining ingredients usually consisting of a mix of barley, rye, or wheat. Now, I'm going to go into continuing to define exactly what bourbon is, because it's quite specific. Mm, There's very specific laws set down to tell you what this is, like a lot of other... Uh, famous spirits from around the world. Yes, indeed. So the the rules state that bourbon must be aged in new American oak barrels, unlike many other whiskies, which are often aged in barrels that have been previously used to hold wine, port, or other whiskey. That's such a wasteful way of doing it, too. Like, why do they have to be brand new barrels? Yeah. Like, in, um, in Scotch whiskey or even Japanese whiskey... Well, with Japanese whiskey, they can probably do whatever the hell they want. Yeah. But specifically with Scotch whiskey, they go to great lengths to get old barrels that have been used for other drinks, like port barrels or wine barrels. Yeah, because it, it affects the flavour. It mm. yeah alters it in very positive ways, whereas the barrels used for bourbon can be charred and usually are, but that's the extent of what they can oh, have had done ha- with them. It has to be charred. Mm. It, it's where they get their colour from. Mm. But on the plus side, it means that bourbon is a very specific taste that doesn't yes. vary a whole lot from the iconic charcoal-y flavour. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, the, the rules also say that the bourbon, after the distillation process, must go into the barrel at no more than 125 proof. Or 62.5%. Yep. And it cannot enter the bottle at anything less than 80 proof. But most importantly, the proofing down of the whiskey can only be achieved through the addition of water. Not Nothing else is allowed to be added to it. So mm. you, have, you end up with a very specific drink with a very specific flavour profile. Yeah, of course. The uh, the truly interesting thing about uh, this definition of um, what exactly is a bourbon is how it came into existence. Because in 1964, a concurrent resolution from US Congress declared bourbon to be a distinctive product of the United States and asked the appropriate agencies of the US government to take appropriate action to prohibit importation into the United States of whiskey designated as bourbon whiskey. Now, because of that, federal regulation in the US now defines bourbon whiskey to only include bourbon produced in the United States. So, to that end, the US regulations with regard to standards for the beverage are not required to be adhered to for products labelled as bourbon and sold outside of the US, with the exception of sold in Canada. Bourbon going to Canada still has to follow those rules. Mm -hmm. But going anywhere else, it doesn't have to. Which is so so weird. Like, if you're going to put down these very specific rules, why not apply it to the rest of the world? Mm, well, and that's yeah, pretty much the opposite of everyone else, where they say this drink has to be made here and has to be made like this, no matter where we're selling it. The Americans go, we don't care about the rest of y'all, but this is how our <laughs> bourbon's going to be. 
Yeah, I suppose. I suppose that's their prerogative. Yeah. So as a continuation of that, what we are drinking today is is bourbon whiskey. Is bourbon whiskey. It is Maker's Mark in particular. And in Australia, Maker's Mark does not adhere to those specific rules and is in fact usually less than 80 proof. Uh, Yeah, but not by much. Not by much, but a a little. So Maker's Mark is full of history it is it is made by the same family that opened the first commercial distillery of bourbon in the US or ever everywhere i guess because nowhere else made bourbon at that time yeah and technically nowhere else is allowed to now no so most of the bourbon like 95 or something percent of the bourbon you will ever see is made in Kentucky. Kentucky, yeah, absolutely, which has a lot of story behind it as well that we'll leave right now because we're talking about Maker's Mark, but Mm. we'll come back to it later. It is 80 proof, by the way. It is 80 proof, exactly. It is 40% alcohol by volume, so they have adhered to those standards. Oh, they have. I I had seen that that was not the case uh, only a couple of years ago. Hmm. Maybe they changed their distilling process, and you know, if they're going to serve one thing somewhere, why not just, for ease of everything serve it the same everywhere yeah well true one would hope anyway mm. i hope that we're drinking the same stuff that they uh make in the u.s oh it does say produced in the u.s yeah by oh, it's, Mark Distillery. It's, it's produced in the u.s yeah in mm. uh in 2016 <laughs> australia actually imported approximately 70.4 million dollars worth of bourbon amazing from the u.s amazing so on the bottle Maker's Mark states that this is America's only handmade bourbon whiskey, never mass-produced. Each individual batch is less than 19 barrels, and this small quantity means we can be choosy about everything we use and everything we do to craft our whiskey. This is why we use the old-style sour mash method. We start each new batch fermentation by using a little of the last, resulting in a more consistent product. We are proud of our unique and full-flavoured handmade bourbon, and so we add our Maker's Mark to each bottle. Enjoy. Very right. nice. Yeah. <clears throat> I like I like it when they add a little bit extra, a little bit of history back into the bottle, and it's not just, oh, here's a nice drop. Yeah, when, when they put a little bit of historical flavour with the flavour of the drink, mm. that's, that's so, always nice. There's a very good chance that we could be drinking alcohol produced by bacteria that's over a century old. Mm, potentially, depending on the... Because if they use a little bit of the last batch... Of the last batch each... Well, a little bit a little bit of the mash from the last mm. mash batch. Yeah, I suppose it's plausible. Plausible. I mean, it's plausible that we are drinking the same drop of water that the dinosaurs did. Yes, well, that's actually highly likely. Mm. But at, uh, at any rate, while we're talking about flavour, let's talk about the flavour of Maker's Mark. We've mm. both tried it straight. Uh, on the rocks. On the rocks, yep. And Mickle's drinking it as a bourbon and coke. And yeah, I'm now drinking it as a bourbon and coke because, uh, interestingly enough, unlike most whiskies which tend to be consumed straight, bourbon actually tends to sell more premix than any other whisky does. Mm. It's a very strong flavour. Because it, of the uh, charred oak barrels. So it lends itself well to being mixed with other things and not lose its flavour too much. Mm, it does. But uh, certainly when you do drink it straight or on the rocks, while the initial flavour is very strong, mm. it kind of mellows into a very pleasant charcoal aftertaste. Yeah, it really does. And it's it's a very sweet drink. 
like for a spirit is surprisingly sweet and that is probably due to the the corn that they use instead of malt yeah well and uh you know, since americans tend to use corn instead of sugar in a lot of things it's something that we we know is sweet and adds a sweetness to things and um but it's really quite nice Mine now has a slight smell of coke to it, but at the same time, there's a definite... um, You can smell the charcoal. Mm. And the charcoal is very prominent in the aftertaste as well. Yeah. Once you've finished drinking your drink, it does tend to leave a charcoal-y flavour in your mouth. Not unlike the same mouthfeel you'd get after having some burnt toast. Mm. Yeah, very true. But, I mean, it's a little more pleasant than burnt toast. Well, yes, more more pleasant than burnt toast. (laughs) So, we picked Maker's Mark as our good drop for this evening because it's available in most places and it is strongly connected with the history of bourbon itself. Yeah, and uh, speaking of the history of bourbon itself, let's uh, talk a little bit about its origins because its origin uh, as distinct from other whiskies is not actually particularly well documented and there's a lot of conflicting legends and claims with different levels of believability as with any number of other things and uh, even the the origin of the name is a bit contentious with uh, some people believing that it was named after the French royal bourbon family while others believe that it was named for Bourbon Street in New Orleans where it was a popular replacement for cognac when cognac ran short and uh, then of course there's others who think it was named after the bourbon county in kentucky which is mm. the more likely of the three the, the old bourbon county yeah what i have read and the majority of them say that the consensus seems to be that the the name came out of old bourbon county like it used to be called whiskey up until this point and then people started calling it Old Bourbon County Whiskey. Yeah, and then it just became bourbon. Though uh, the invention of bourbon itself is um, actually often attributed to a uh, Kentucky-based Baptist minister and distiller named um, Elijah Craig, who was also believed to have been the first to have used charred oak casks for aging. Some also say that the drink was created and named by a native of Bourbon County named Jacob Spears. But what seems more likely, however, due to the fact that um, essentially any type of grain can be used to make whiskey, and European distillers have been aging whiskey and charring barrels for added flavour for centuries, is that after distillation making its way to the new country of America, the drink just naturally evolved because corn was readily available. Mm. As the Europeans came over, they searched for local produce to distill and produce local drinks and corn being the the biggest thing there something in it that had been cultivated for a, a long time two three thousand years potentially they decided oh let's let's just use that see how we go yeah so well well stories <laughs> attributing it to one person or another are, are nice it's it's more likely that it just sort of came into existence through convenience yeah But the man who started the first distillery, uh, Samuels, he, uh, Bill Samuels, I think, owns uh, Maker's Mark now. He says that bourbon was a series of happy accidents. So in the early 18th century, bourbon and whiskey wasn't the biggest thing getting drunk around then. It it was rum. It was cheap 
watery, self-made rum. And that was mostly due to the, the trade triangle going from North America to the Caribbean to Africa and back again. So from America, they would trade corn and other grains and crops. They would take that to the Caribbean, where it would be traded for sugar and sugarcane. And from there, it would go to Africa to trade slaves onto the boats. And then from there, they go back to America and New Orleans. And the trade cycle would continue. So rum being made from cane sugar or sugarcane, it was the biggest thing at the time. And so they searched for more local things to produce it when the slave trade ended and corn was the biggest thing around. So they started producing corn and it was great. It predominated it dominated the spirit unlike anything they'd had before. So quote unquote discovered uh, Kentucky, which was full of lush vegetation and it was located on a limestone shelf which made the water uh, high in calcium and low in iron, which was perfect for distilling whiskey. Mm-hmm. And the third thing came in the late 1780s with the uh, Natchez Trail from Lexington to New Orleans. Uh, the the clergyman, Elijah Craig, uh, he found that the cheapest way to uh, clean a fish barrel to, <laughs> to, use with, uh, to use for bourbon was to char it. Just burn the shit out of the inside, and voila, it's cleaned. And it's ready for bourbon. It's ready for bourbon, and that created that gave it that uh, classic taste that we were talking about just before that everyone knows and loves today. And these, when they, when these barrels arrived in New Orleans, they discovered they had a very, very different product. Uh, and the folks in New Orleans asked them to bring more of that, bring back more of that whiskey from bourbon. And the fourth thing, believe it or not, is that the first distillers, they used American white oak, which, you know, just happened to grow in abundance in Kentucky. And it is the only wood that seems to absorb the uh, tannic acids and vanillins out of the bourbon, unlike any anything else. Hmm. Which is why now it's a requirement that they use charred white oak. Hmm. Charred American white oak. So now it's it's perfect. It's humble beginnings, like happy accidents all over the place. Yeah, and yeah, happy accidents that lead to fantastic legends. And uh, speaking of happy accidents, let's talk about our uh, odd drop for today, <laughs> which was certainly a happy accident when we discovered uh, Knob Creek. It was a. It's it's actually a really good bourbon. Like it, it's up there with Maker's Mark and. Uh, the other good bourbons. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, no- Knob Creek is a bourbon whiskey produced by Beam Santori at the Jim Beam. Is. Yeah, of course it is. Because everything <laughs> seems to be owned by Beam Santori these days, and uh, it's produced at the Jim Beam Distillery in Claremont, Kentucky, and uh, it is one of the four Jim Beam small batch bourbon brands targeted for the high end liquor market, with uh, the others being. Booker's, Baker's, and Basil Hayden's. Now, uh, Knob Creek Bourbon has actually won a number of awards, including two double gold, three gold, one silver, and one bronze medal at the San Francisco World Spirits Competition between 2005 and 2012. Wow. This almost qualifies to be our top drop. Mm, And yeah, in 2015, they even won the Best Bourbon Award at the same 
competition. But we picked it as our odd drop because of the name. Yeah, because... Uh, Even though it's a name of a location. Much like last week's odd drop, in um, certain locales, knob has more meanings than just what you have on a door. Mm. It's... Uh, yeah, well, if you're in one of those countries where it does not mean just... Doesn't just mean a doorknob. Then, yeah, you know what we're talking about. Otherwise, we're just talking about Knob Creek, which is a place, undoubtedly. But um, interesting little bit of trivia about the Knob Creek bourbon, which is that um, it was originally aged nine years. So they they set down the casks to age in uh, in 2000. But in 2009, after they released it, the demand exceeded the projections they'd had when they laid it down by such an amount that they stopped aging any future amounts they produced and just released it without wow. any aging whatsoever to catch up with demand. Holy shit. And they've been making it that way ever since. Since, like, 2009. Since 2009. they wow. In 2009, they stopped aging their bourbon so they could meet demand. <laughs> Crazy. So if you can find one of the original batch, it was aged. But all of the current ones are not. And, of course, because of the requirements for bourbon, if they've been aged, they have to say so. And if they haven't been, they don't. Amazing. So let, let's throw in a little bit more history. Because like every good uh, alcohol story, it's got to have a rebellion in it. Oh, and of course. bourbon is no exception. We haven't had a good rebellion story for a while. So. No. So the government decided they were going to bring in a whiskey excise tax because bourbon was doing so well that they needed to get something back from it, fill the coffers out of that. Take get, a little piece of the pie. Yeah, get yeah. themselves out of the debt that they were getting themselves into. And why? what's the government for if not uh, making mistakes and then making other people pay for it? So in 19, 1791, only 200 years before I started this, uh, 1791, they brought in this tax. But the biggest problem with this tax is that it was payable upon production, not upon sale. Because at the time, there was a lot of bartering involved. People were tra- trading bourbon for tables and chairs or for services or for fruit and vegetables that they needed because it was a easier currency to to make whiskey and use that as a bartering chip and more common than hard currency as well. So the farmers and distillers, they started to to march and protest and the government called up 13,000 militia to deal with these rebels. But they, they decided they were going to disperse before any conflict happened. Amazing. Yeah. But they, the, the biggest thing was that... Kentucky and Tennessee were exempt from these tax laws for a while. Mm, which explains why Tennessee also produced whiskey, which is not a Tennessee whiskey and is not a bourbon. It is, it is similar, though. Made very, very... We should talk about that, actually. Let's talk about the difference between bourbon whiskey, uh, Tennessee whiskey, and scotch whiskey. So bourbon whiskey, as you've heard before, it's uh, it's got sweet, it's got wood, vanilla, and caramel flavors. It is you know made with at least fifty one percent corn and a mix of barley, rye, and wheat. Brands like Jim Beam, Maker's Mark, Four Roses, etc. And apparently, it goes great in old fashions. Like it's the right style of whiskey to have in an old fashioned. So Tennessee whiskey, by comparison, is more has more charcoal flavors 
to it. And the difference between uh, bourbon, straight bourbon and Tennessee whiskey is that Tennessee whiskey must go through an additional step. It's got to be uh, charcoal filtered in the Lincoln County process, which means they filter it through charcoal sugarcane uh, staves before it gets put into the bottle. And you've got uh, brands like Jack Daniels, George Dickel, and Nelson's Green Briar. And it goes great in a Lynchburg lemonade. So Tennessee whiskey is filtered through sugar maple charcoal. So the main difference between scotch and bourbon is geographic and ingredients and spelling. Well, that's everything. What the fuck yeah. is this article? So scotch whiskey is made in Scotland and is made from mostly malted barley compared to bourbon, which is made from mostly corn. So, But if you're in England and you ask for a whiskey, you're going to get a scotch. Yeah. But if you're in Ireland, you're going to get an Irish whiskey. Yes. But but to find out more about Irish whiskey, stay tuned for our Irish whiskey episode. That will be coming up fairly soon. All right. Now, uh, while we're talking more about uh, whiskeys, let's talk a bit about uh, the popularity and sales of bourbon whiskeys. Mm. So, uh, in, in America, they have the Distilled Spirit Council of the United States, and they track <laughs> sales of, unfortunately, they're, they're not overly specific, they track bourbon and Tennessee whiskey together, oh, rather than individually. But they're different drinks. Yeah. Don't, don't they know? But, they yeah, apparently they're the only things they care about that are produced in America. <laughs> and they're um and they recorded that in two thousand fourteen more than nineteen million nine liter casks of bourbon and Tennessee whiskey were sold in the US. Wow. And uh, that generated almost two point seven billion dollars of wholesale distillery revenue. Now comparatively, exports for that same year were to a value of approximately one billion dollars. Interesting. And so they drink Far more than they export. Far more than they export. And, That's like uh, Australia and their wines. Yeah. Well, and that $1 billion of revenue made up 60% of, sorry, over 60% of all of the US spirit exports for the year. So they, they exported a total of $1.6 billion worth of spirits that year. And a billion dollars of that was, was Tennessee bourbon. whiskey and bourbon. Because bourbon is popular all around the world. Yeah, well, and in fact, the major export markets for U.S. spirits in descending order are Canada. Hmm. Which, big, big surprise there. Yeah, they're, they're right there. And then the U.K., Germany, Australia, and France as, as the top five. Australia is above France in bourbon consumption. In, in importing spirits from the U.S., yes. Oh, there you go. So, we're probably heading towards the end of our episode, but before we get any further we got to talk about today's top drop. Yes, indeed. So this this is probably... The, this has the most unique story so far. Uh, it is called Jefferson's Ocean Aged at Sea Bourbon. So, or Jefferson's Ocean for short. Yeah, it sounds a little gimmicky, but it, it is genuinely aged at sea. Yeah. Well, it's aged both on land at, and at and sea. And at sea, yes. Not entirely at sea. So... It is a very small batch bourbon, and or Kentucky bourbon, if you want to get really specific. Uh, they age it in, you know, like a regular bourbon, American charred oak barrels, for around eight years on land. And then, after those eight years, they place it on a ship. And, they, and that ship goes all around the world. It'll cross the equator many, many times. 
by the time it gets back. So it started out as an experiment with just three bourbon barrels on on uh, Trey's friend, Chris Fisher of, of Osearch, the ship. They were curious to discover what would happen if bourbon was left to weather the extreme elements, temperature fluctuations, salt air, and the rocking of the ship. The result was a thick, dark bourbon that showcases complex flavors reminiscent of other spirits. The almost black and caramel flavors resemble a dark rum as the sugars within the barrels caramelized, and the briny, savory taste from the barrels breathing the sea air is reminiscent of Islay Scotch. And at its core, it's a true bourbon. So this this was so popular that they've now commercialized this experiment, and the the ship that they transport these bourbon barrels on now crosses typically crosses the equator four to five times and visits five continents and over 30 ports before it gets bottled and sent out and it certainly does sound like something i want to try sure does and it's as with many of our top drops it's hard to find Mm. but you can buy it it's available on the whiskey exchange for about $150 plus shipping. 150 Australian mm. plus, plus shipping. Plus shipping. And that shipping is about $55. Yeah. But it makes sense for a a bottle of liquid to be expensive to ship because yeah. you don't want it to break. Yeah, no, you, you wouldn't want to have a broken glass bottle arrive. That would be mm. hugely disappointing. It would be very a very sad day because it's supposed to be very good bourbon. Uh, I... I'm definitely interested in trying that one day. Yes, if we can acquire it, I would also be interested in mm. trying that. So uh, let's uh, double back and talk about uh, how many bottle caps we would rate Maker's Mark. Oh, we forgot. Well, th- that's the end of the episode thing. I would rate Maker's Mark a eight, maybe a seven and a half, because I it it has a very interesting flavor, but I don't think I drank it. I, I don't think I had it the the right way for this drink. Maybe a seven. Yeah. Because I mean, it, it is full of complex and interesting flavors, but because I was drinking it over ice and not as part of a cocktail or a, a bourbon and coke, maybe I'm not really appreciating it for how it could be. Yeah, I, I don't think I've ever had a a bourbon straight before mm. I, I drank this Maker's Mark. I, I drank it the way the majority of people drink bourbon, and um, yeah, I, I think I would uh, I would also give this about a about a seven seven and a mm. half bottle caps. I, I think I've I've had uh, nicer bourbon and cokes than than this. Like I, I find the Bullet Bourbon and Cola to be a very pleasant premix. But it's a premix, so they've really sort of nailed down that perfect yeah. ratio and between that, that bourbon and may, coke. That may well be why they sell a higher percentage of bourbon sales are as premixes than as straight bourbon. Mm. Could be. Because that, that balance is the key to getting the taste just right. So this is probably this drink is probably going to go back on my shelf and I won't touch it to touch it much over the next 6 to 12 months. I'll probably bring it to parties and have someone else drink it for me. <laughs> well, it's it's good for that. I mean, it's it's very drinkable. It's very pleasant. Hmm. I just don't think it's my cup of tea. I, d- I don't I'm not yeah, I'm not sure I like it. I don't know. I'll try it with Coke and see how I go. 
but yeah, that that wraps us up for today. Uh, yeah, so, have you got anything else? Uh, no, just leading into the plugs. So do tell your friends about us. Yeah, share the love, uh, spread the news. Uh, you can let us know how we did. If you if you like bourbon and think we're uh, butchers for drink for talking about it as we did, you can send us an email at a good drop at gmail.com. You can check us out on Facebook. Hit that like button at A Good Drop Podcast. Yep, we are, of course, on iTunes, also at A Good Drop Podcast. Or check us out on your favorite podcast app. You'll probably find us there. So look, so, out, look out for the beer icon. Yeah. And, little beer uh, thumbnail. And next time we will be talking about Uzo, so be sure to join us then when we talk about uh, another Anisette with a great history behind it. It's a Greek history, isn't it? It is. Greek, great. Great Greek history. Great Greek history. Hopefully not a tragedy. (laughs) Who knows? Find out next time. Find out next time. So, yeah, thanks for listening, and until next time... Cheers. Cheers.